I won't write about the things that I'm not personally interested in, but I will write about things that scare me because I think that that makes them all the less scary in the final analysis because I'm able to work out on the page. And by the way, talking about rough drafts and the cutting room floor and the editors and all of that, I do believe in just letting go and writing absolutely anything and everything that comes to your mind in the first draft and not being afraid of like how it's going to come out or whatever. You can always go back. You can always cut things. You can always edit things out. And invariably, those things will happen if uh, an editor gets their hands on it. This particular manuscript, it had been published in the original form that submitted to the publisher. It would have been maybe 50% longer than what it is. So there was a lot that ended up on the cutting room floor from this particular novel. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Over the course of the last several years, we've all been exposed to stories of immigrant issues from fleeing war-torn regions, seeking asylum, and topics that we've covered even from episode one of this very podcast, to issues finding solace when we really need a firm landing place, often resulting in deportation and more displacement for those that have really experienced incredible loss and trials and tribulations over the years. So today we're going to dive into the personal side of a story like that through the power of fiction, as I'm joined by Orlando Ortega Medina. He is the author of a new work of fiction called The Fitful Sleep of Immigrants. And I've got my advanced reader copy right here. Orlando Ortega Medina was born in Los Angeles to Sephardic immigrants from Cuba. He studied English literature at UCLA and has a Juris Doctor law degree from Southwestern University School of Law. At university, he won the National Society of Arts and Letters Award for Short Stories. Ortega Medina's short story collection, Jerusalem Ablaze, was shortlisted for the Polari First Book Prize back in 2017. In 2018, he was named the Maryland Hasid Emerging Author for the Houston Jewish Book and Arts Festival. He is also the author of three novels, The Death of Baseball, The Savior of Sixth Street, and The Fitful Sleep of Immigrants, which is available now. This is what we're going to dive into today. I'm so pleased to introduce you all to Orlando Ortega Medina. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Yeah, you know, I have to tell you something. My son is named the same way as you. Orlando is also Roland. And so I chose the more French or British pronunciation of that myself. But I learned a bit about the roots of that name through exploration and through discovery. I'm curious about how you ended up with the name Orlando. My great grandfather was a great fan of opera and his favorite opera was Orlando. So he named his son, my grandfather, Orlando. Then that just continued on a tradition. My grandfather named my father Orlando. They named me Orlando. And the name's just sort of like floating around at the moment. So thanks to the opera. <laughs> well, I love that. Roots in a love of music. So I'm sure you've heard it a few times. And I was also named for a song. I was named for the song Karina by Taj Mahal. <laughs> so it has something in common. Music. So let's get started with your origin story. What inspires you to write? Well, I was born to a multi-ethnic family. 
my, both of my parents emigrated to the United States in the late 50s from Cuba. My father's half of his family had emigrated to Cuba from Florida, his mother's side. And my mother's parents had emigrated to Cuba from the Canary Islands. So there was this sort of like wave of immigration focusing on, on Cuba. Then because of the uh, Cuban revolution, my parents left Cuba. I was born in the United States. They located in a, an area of the country where basically we were the only Hispanic family in the neighborhood. So we were very different from the people that were around us. Again, since I was born in the United States, I was effectively different from my own parents who had emigrated to the States. I was different from the children that I was going to school with. And then the irony of it all is that my parents at some point decided to connect uh, us, the children that were born in the States, with other Cuban families. So they joined what was called the Cuban Cultural Club in Los Angeles that was about 50 miles away from where we lived. And I realized that I was different from those kids that were also raised in Cuban households as well, because our family was Jewish and theirs mainly were Roman Catholics. So all of my early childhood, I was always questioning my identity. I just felt like I wasn't exactly like like anybody, you know, not even like my own family, the people that I was supposed to be like. So that started me on a search for uh, identity, that I explored my identity in different ways. But ultimately, I found that the most productive way for me to do that was to explore it in fiction. So a lot of my fiction is about individuals who are trying to find themselves in the world, and some more successful than others. So that's really been sort of the commencement of my journey in, into fiction. So why did you choose, and, and I'm going to read from the back cover right now, just to give people a taste. San Francisco, 1997. Attorney Mark Mendez, the estranged son of a prominent rabbi and a burned out lawyer with addiction issues, plots his exit from the big city of San Francisco to a more peaceful life in idyllic Napa Valley. But before he can realize his dream, the U.S. government summons his Salvadoran life partner, Isaac Perez, to immigration court, threatening him with deportation. You know, when I first got this book, I read that and I thought, this guy likes to write about some pretty heavy things <laughs> and big issues. And I, I have to tell you, on this podcast, this is not the first time that I've interviewed authors who are tackling these big issues in this way. So, I was hoping we could dive into why you choose to write about these sorts of topics, in particular, why you set this one in 1997, as opposed to more recently. The novel is inspired by my own experiences in having to leave the United States for reasons having to do with immigration. This was before I became an immigration lawyer. So that's, that's sort of my day job is I'm an immigration lawyer, U.S. immigration lawyer. I'm helping get people into the United States, a country that I really wasn't able to remain in. And this is what happened was that I got into a relationship with another chap who was in the United States on a grant of temporary asylum. He fled the civil war in El Salvador, and he knew that eventually he would have to present some kind of a, a claim in court. But in the early days when we first got together, it didn't seem to be that critical of an issue. We were just getting to know each other, but time passed. And around 95, 96, 97, it was clear to us that the war had wrapped up in El Salvador. My partner didn't really have strong grounds on which to claim asylum. So if we had gone forward on a case to present in court, it was probably when he was going to lose. And then we would have to be facing the option of him having to return to El Salvador and me having to go there. So what we decided was that we would jump before we were pushed. So we applied for immigration to Canada, left, 
and started basically from zero. So I left my family, my career as a lawyer in San Francisco in the 90s. And we sought the recognition of our relationship, which Canada did offer that. So the book. So what happened with this book? I was, you know, even though we felt very happy and free to be in Canada, I felt a certain bitterness and anger, if you will, at having had to make that decision. Of course, in 1997, there was no same-sex marriage in the United States at the time. So that would have solved the problem, but you know, it wasn't available. So I started writing what happened to us as a type of memoir. And I realized after I finished that supposed memoir, it was you know, really, it wasn't the most pleasant read because again, my, my state of mind was very negative at that point. So I put it aside and I continued writing the fiction that I had been writing previously. And then at some point, maybe 10 years later, I decided, I think I can, can t- tackle this material again But rather than uh, write it from the perspective of my own life, my memoir, I'm going to fictionalize it. And I'm going to set it in a way uh, as if we had never left the United States and had decided to fight out the case in the courts, just as an alternate universe version of our own lives. So there are many touch points in the novel that are very similar to our lives, mine and my partner's, now my husband's. But there are many parts that are quite different. So it's very interesting to for the people that that know us and they're, oh yeah, this is, oh no, this doesn't seem to be, oh yeah, this seems to be. So a lot of sort of people trying to unpick what's fiction and what's not fiction. And I imagine trying to find out if there was, you know, this this Silva character <laughs> in, your, in your life. I mean, but you're also touching on things like the environmental issues that we are exposed to here in California from the earthquakes, you know, our youth, I mean, I've been in California since 89. So shortly after the big one that hit San Francisco, actually, Aptos was the epicenter. I'm in Santa Cruz County. So I'm actually much closer to that here. But the wildfires, the impacts that we see around the health of our ecosystems and things like that are, are really kind of flowing out of control again. I will say that for me, reading your book brought me right back to my coming of age story too, because I'm probably around the same age as you. I mean, I'm 46. You might be a little bit older, but like I was in college at that time. And I was also pretty deeply steeped in the gay community of San Francisco because a lot of my friends were gay. And so I was up in San Francisco and experiencing much of this environment and people coming of age and making these choices. And in some cases, even battling some of the issues you're talking about, like, oh, well, my partner is from Korea and their HB1 visa is expiring and they're going to have to leave and things along those lines and making decisions about whether they're going to go to Korea with their partner or stay behind here and really being forced to make choices that you're not necessarily, maybe your relationship isn't there yet, but there's a promise of it. And it just it leaves me thinking, why the heck can't we get to this point where we are just one global society and we accept that and people can move freely as opposed to saying, oh no, you're from that area. So you can't come to our country. And I think you probably are right with me in this, a little sick of it. And frankly, when we have political climbs erupt where suddenly, you know, deportation is top of the news, it's unsettling. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is a very a, a big, something that, that people think about when they think of immigrants or migrants, they think of the migrants that are coming from the South of the United States. But I mean, there's quite a large uh, amount of illegal migration that's coming in. I mean, I know this because of my practice coming in from the North, from Canada. There's other people that come into the United States and they just go under the radar and they're working on, and who's going to 
distinguish them from any other American citizen. There are Europeans as well who come in and they overstay their welcome. And the U.S.'s official welcome, I should say. And again, they're Europeans. So, you know, it's obviously it's obvious they're not Americans, but nobody asks them, what is your status here? Do you have the right to work? They're there. They're, so they're as much a part of the society as the people who are visible minorities that have come from the South. And yet all of the focus is on the visible minorities from the South. And now, I guess, from other places as well. You know, South Asia, East Asia too. But you're right. I mean, most of it is focused on the South. I went through the process of doing fiancé visa for a German I was engaged to. Dissolved the engagement before we got married, but I'm familiar with the process. And even then, working with a European country, you have to put your entire life on full display. And it's a little uncomfortable at times, but the reality is that we continue to see people who, and this is more an issue here in the United States than I think some other parts of the globe. Canada has been an asylum for for more communities and a broader reach of recent years. It feels like we're operating in last century as opposed to this one in many ways. And so what do you see as somebody who's now, you know, an expat, you're no longer here in the, the United States, you live in London. How is it different there? I think it's the uh, politics are not as polarized here. I think that even what's called the Conservative Party in the UK is much more progressive than what would be considered to be the Republican Party in the United States. So it's we don't really have political movement here that is that far to the right. I mean, there is something called fringe parties like the English National Party, which are, but they have no representation whatsoever in, in the parliament or in the government. But, you know, generally speaking, I will say that people are allowed to live and let live. I personally think that there's, I feel more freedom and more safety and more, how can I say it? You know, there's a national health system here that we all pitch into. And uh, so we don't have to be worrying about all of the insurance payments that people have to be worried about in the United States, affordability of health care. And we're also not being pushed and pumped by pharmaceutical companies to purchase this medicine or that medicine or what have you. Just things like that. It, it, whenever I go to visit the United States and I'm, I'm watching the television, I'm seeing this, you know, constant push about you. Know, Talk to your doctor about this pill or, you know, go see your medical provider about that. Massive pharmacies on almost every single corner. I mean, we don't have that over here. So it's like, what's the reality? Is, is the reality that people are more ill in the United States than they are in Europe? I don't think that's the case. I mean, I think it's there's a big push on profit and business and all that. Okay, it's, it's probably has made the United States what it is today. It's a, it's a great country. It's got lots of opportunity. It's a huge market, but it doesn't necessarily have to be quite like that. I think there could be more balance in the system between you know social justice and thinking about people as individuals as opposed to just commodities or, or something to sell their products to. Sorry that we're veering off into politics here, but... Well... Big pharma is a big problem. I will say, you know, while I don't necessarily talk about politics, I talk about things that touch on politics quite a lot. No apology needed. What I will say here in the States that differs in a way that is a little frustrating, having spent time in Europe, I speak French fluently, so I've spent a lot of time in Francophone countries as well. You know, you get a little sick, you have an infection, you can go to the pharmacist and they can give you an antibiotic if you need one. 
And you can't do that here. You have to go to a doctor's office. You have to do the copay. You have to sit with them. Maybe you get a physician's assistant or something like that, but it's more complicated than something quite as basic as, you know, hey, I have an infection in my finger and you can see that it's oozing pus. Can I please get an antibiotic to solve it? So in a way, it's like pharmacists are handcuffed a little bit here, but we also have a system where, yes, you know, they're big box stores like Walgreens or CVS, which are really built to sell you a lot of stuff that you don't need in addition to whatever you came to the pharmacy for. It's just a different focus on consumerism than what we see. Yeah. When I left the States, I didn't really, I mean, it, I mean, to me, I didn't notice really a difference because I, I had the only country that I'd spent subta- substantial amount of time in was, had been Israel. And Israel was a completely different Israel than it is today at that point. It was very agricultural. So, you know, it was a different world. So, I mean, I wasn't really thinking about what awaited me in Canada and then afterwards England. I was just looking for a place where I could live as, you know, honestly, as, you know, a gay man with his partner and, you know, hopefully get married to my partner. That's what we were looking for. But we've enjoyed a lot of liberal social policies that I just can't see going back to. Even now, I, I could marry my partner, try to sponsor him back in the United States. But, you know, I'm, and I do, I'm a proud American expat. Don't take, get me wrong. It's not like I, I have anything against the country or the, or the state where I was born. And you know, I'm a Californian. I'm a Los Angelino. I love my visits there every year. But I just couldn't, we, we just couldn't go back on any kind of permanent basis because we enjoy our lives so much here. You know, again, all of the uh, liberal social policies, a lot of things that people are still battling in the United States, you know, environmental issues, the right to make decisions about your own body, gay marriage. Now it looks like it's there's a potential that that can go backwards if the Supreme Court gets a hold of a case like that. We don't really want to go back to that, that situation. So that's why we're going to basically be here to stay. Well, I mean, I, I got the impression from being here in the United States that things were just as polarized in the UK. So it's really interesting to hear that perspective. And I think that also speaks to how our media covers what's happening in the UK as well. So very interesting. Now, I didn't get the chance to finish your book, but I did have the opportunity to read through some chapters and piece through. And I have to say that your prose is just beautiful. So I could see myself spending more than an afternoon finishing it. I mean, it's only, it's not the longest book, 335 pages, roughly, I think. But again, beautifully written. I can see why you've been shortlisted for prizes in the past. What are your plans for this endeavor? What do you hope to see from it? Right now, so the book has been published. It's been getting some good press. It got, it was a story and a review in the Los Angeles Times, which I was really happy to see that came out on publication date online and then the subsequent Sunday. So I was really happy about that. And then we also got some good press in Newsweek. Today's show listed it as one of the uh, books that they were looking forward to to reading in 23. So all of that is good. I have an agent who's working on subsidiary rights to do translations of the book, sell translation rights into other languages, other markets. So, I mean, at this point, I've given birth, so to speak, to the book, put it out there in the world, and whatever happens will happen. I'm just working on the next project now, which is a prequel to the book, which is going to tell Isaac's story. Isaac is the Salvadoran character in in the book. What propelled him to leave El Salvador and his journey from El Salvador through Guatemala and Mexico and into the United States. So that's my next project. So you've been asked questions about how close this mirrors your 
your life, how close does your depiction of Isaac mirror your partner? I think that the personality is there. There are biographical elements to Isaac's story that mirror my partner's. But he and I were talking about that, and he was like, I think it's 10% of what's there is nonfiction. And you know, the other 90% is your imagination. I would say I would put it at more like 30% biographical and 70% imaginary. So, But again, it's all woven through, so it's difficult to pick it apart. Well, I've been tempted to write my story from my early teen years in autobiographical form. But one of my dear friends suggested that I look to do it in fiction for a couple of reasons. One is to protect people's anonymity if you don't want to necessarily reveal too much about other people in your life. And then another being that (laughs) they said, frankly, you'll sell a lot more copies if you do it as fiction. And I didn't think of that as the reason behind doing something like that, but I get where they're coming from in another way too. I wouldn't necessarily be writing it either just to hit some bestseller list, but I'm thinking about it. And so I was hoping to learn a little bit about that experience of shifting it from being a more autobiographical form to a a work of fiction. I think probably the best way to approach it is to write out your autobiography, uh, if you will, and then just look at it assess it at that point and decide, you know, do I want to draw on this as fodder or inspiration for fiction? Then you might test that out as well. It's, it's writing a novel is, is, for me at least, it's a very, very long, drawn-out process. So I, I was working on, on this one on, off and on actively since 2017, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. So, and then I, I sold it to Amble Press in 2020, And then the process of their editing started, which was another, it it was unexpected. I thought that when they purchased it and said, great, looks great, we'll we'll publish it, that I was done. But no, their managing editor extraordinaire, Michael Nava, who is an excellent novelist himself, he said, I'll get this back to you. And he came back to me and it was like, uh, it was another massive rewrite, but it made the book so much better. So between, yeah, the time that I started working on it as a fiction until the time that it actually came out in print, we're talking about five, six years. It's a slow process. So yeah, you have to start somewhere and just see where you go. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, a great editor can change a book for the better in ways that are really tough to see. I was a big fan of Raymond Carver, who you probably know. And I learned a story about his editor and a shift in editors that kind of changed my way of seeing Raymond Carver as an author. So there was a podcast I listened to where they went into that deeply and they actually compared the Raymond Carver version and then his edited version. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I like both of them, but they are so different. It was really curious to see kind of that peek behind the curtain of what a great editor can do with even somebody who is broadly known as one of the the great authors of our modern era, so to speak. That is the peek behind the curtain because you know what the reader gets, there's this assumption that that you know the writer sat down, wrote that out, you know, maybe corrected a few typos here and there, and that was it. But it's it's so not like that. 
You know, it's it really is. I, I have to say, you know, to be honest, I get all of the, say, the praise for whatever's there or the blame. But the truth is that it's it's very much a collaborative process. You probably know this, this as well. You know, you write a draft, people read it, they give you their feedback. Some of it you take on board, some of it that you throw out. Then if you get an, a professional editor involved, again, there are rewrites and all. So what you started with as your initial draft is so much more different and less publishable. <laughs> than what comes out at the at the very end, if you're fortunate enough to get published. I think that the biggest shame is there are probably a lot of really excellent novelists, excellent work out there that just doesn't make it to print because, you know, the process is difficult to, you know, you're pitching your book to publishers throughout the entire country. You get, you know, a lot of rejection notices. And it's very easy to just say, you know, I, I'm not going to keep sending my book out. You know, this is the 25th rejection notice or they don't respond to me. And so, you know, I'm no good. But I, th- I think that there are a lot of really excellent writers out there that uh, that they just don't make it to print. And, and I was very, very lucky. I consider myself very lucky to have finally made it into into print, you know, in, you know, my late 40s. Um, I wish it would have happened earlier, but, you know, that's that's just the way it worked out for me. Yeah. Well, so many people now turn to self-publishing with Amazon and other EPUB providers. But I think the point that we're kind of getting to is that you might miss out on that professional editing, which can actually offer that fit, finish, polish, and improvement to a story to make it that much more likely to succeed and for more people to discover it because it gets talked about and it gets good reviews and, and all of those things that are so critically important to an author's work. So you mentioned that you're working on the prequel to The Fitful Sleep of Immigrants. I wanted to ask you um, about the cover choice here, Um, this beautiful painting that you put on the book itself. How did that process work, working through the publisher? Was this something you brought to them as an idea? It's simply beautiful. And for those listening and not watching on YouTube, depiction of a couple of men in what looks like a watercolor spooning in, in bed, I'm imagining. It's beautiful. I really love it. So I had absolutely no no input into that. So <laughs> once I was told by the publisher that the book was going into production and that book cover was being designed, I thought that I was going to get like, you know, okay, here are two or three different cover options, which is the one that you prefer or uh, (laughs) something like that, or, or, you know, see how anything, even about the font. So what do you think about the font? Should we use this? Should we use that? No, the cover designer, her name's Anne McMahon. She's like actually an award-winning cover designer. She does virtually all of the covers for Bywater Books, Animal Press. She was the one who put that together. They sent it to me. This looks great to us. We hope it looks great to you. And my partner looked at me and he says, it looks great to me. And I was just like, okay, that's the cover. It's really well done. I mean, I see a lot of covers I, I look at and I go, hmm, interesting choice. But this one was not one of them. It's, I think, very fitting for the story too. So, And one of the things that I like about it, I don't know if you'll agree, is that when you see their posture and, and maybe even whatever you can make out of their facial expressions, you can see a, a kind of almost like a, a melancholy feel to that something is... I mean, obviously they're close, they're spooning in bed. It seems to me, it communicates like all is not well. And that's kind of what the book communicates as well. 
Yeah, it's definitely, it captures the emotion. So, I mean, this touches back again on that earlier comment I made. You're not afraid to touch on these heavy issues. You cover addiction. The primary character, he goes to Narcotics Anonymous meetings. Lovers who've passed away, partners with looming deportation, all of that is here. Wow. Okay. Is there something that you won't write about? I don't think so. I can't think of anything that, well, I mean, I could probably, yes. I won't write about the things that I'm not personally interested in, but I will write about things that scare me because I think that that makes them all the less scary in the final analysis because I'm able to work out on the page. And by the way, talking about rough drafts and the cutting room floor and the editors and all of that, I do believe in just letting go and writing absolutely anything and everything that comes to your mind in the first draft and not being afraid of like how it's going to come out or what have you. you can always go back you can always cut things you can always edit things out and invariably those things will happen if uh, an editor gets their hands on it this particular manuscript it had been published in the original form that submitted to the publisher it would have been maybe 50 percent longer than what it is so there was a lot that ended up on the cutting room floor from this particular novel. And I think those are the things that I tackled, but ultimately it was not something that was necessarily publishable in the estimation of my editor and publisher. Well, and that's such a hard choice to make, right? You tell the story and it's like, well, what can you cut? Because really maybe the book is even a little bit too long to be as marketable as you want it to be. And I think because when you start to get into the 500, 600 page like, novels, like the George R.R. R. Martins of the world, then suddenly it's like, okay, you might have an avid science fiction reader that wants to page through all of that, but you might appeal to a shrunken audience, so to speak. And if these threads that might seem important to you don't actually add to the story, it's hard to say goodbye to those things though, as the author, right? It's like, that's where the finesse of the editor can be critical to your success. I just, it's a hard thing to do. The hardest thing to do is to cut. Yeah, that's what I've, I've learned to, to live with, uh, to trust the editors and go with their instincts. Uh, early on in my writing career, I, I was not that understanding. I am now. There's the other thing, there's an economic aspect to it. I don't know, know if you wanted to sort of touch on that, but you know, for a small press, they don't have the huge financial resources that a large press does. So the difference between 100,000 words and 150,000 words when it comes to printing a book and then having to set up a retail price in it so that they can recover their costs, it's huge. So that's why what I gave to them, say, was 150, 160,000 words. And for economic reasons, probably as much as for the conciseness and just to strengthen the novel, we had to get this down to 100,000 words or less. So right now, I think it comes in at about 98,600 words. I can tell you that it is, it is even though I wrote 160, I do consider that it is a much stronger novel now than what it is that I gave to them. So I, I think their instincts were correct for whatever their reasons were, and I, I'm happy with so you put a question on your intake form that I've often wanted to ask people, but shied from, because perhaps I don't want to be asked it, but I'm going to ask it. If you had it to do over again, all of it, what would you do differently? I went from being an English major at UCLA to going to law school because I wanted to make a living. And I thought that it was going to be difficult if I went on to an MFA program to continue my studies in, in creative writing. So I made this decision to become a lawyer. And I thought, eventually, I'll come back to writing. It took me a long, long time after graduating law school and getting into my career as a lawyer to get back into writing. I think that if I had had it to do it all over again, I would have looked for a way to incorporate writing 
into my life as I have learned to do as of late much early on. Because I think that I, I lost a lot of precious time in just setting it aside and, and figuring I'll get to it eventually. So that's what I would have done differently in the professional side of things. On the personal side of things, I don't really have any any regrets. I think that I would maybe what I would have done. Now this is all hindsight, of course, as opposed to like uh, my instinct at the time is I probably would have looked for ways to take a more active role in trying to advocate while I was still in the United States, advocate for the rights that my partner and I were looking for. We didn't do that. We just chose sort of, you can say, the easy, hard way, which is to leave and go somewhere where those rights were already there. By doing that, I think that in some ways, I may have shortchanged myself and and ourselves, at least to, to have given some, some kind of a try and become a bit more active and trying to change the system as opposed to just leaving the system. So I would say that on that on that side of things, that's probably what I would have done differently. We may not have accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, but at least I would have felt like we did something. But now I'm happy that I'm doing this at least and I'm being able to talk about it in a way that I was never able to talk about it before. I think you've done amazing work. I look forward to finishing the book cover to cover. I already shared on TikTok that I was excited to be interviewing you today. So I may even just share a snip here and there because again, your prose is just great. I'm always looking for a new author I enjoy reading. And as somebody who read a lot of the classics, I consider myself a realist. So I like realist works a lot. That doesn't mean I don't enjoy a romance or a sci-fi here and there, but I really do like works very much like this one, where I feel like I can get into a story and inside someone's head and inside the experience, then it feels like something I could have lived. I just enjoy that so much. And this book provides that. So thank you for writing it, for being willing to put your story out there in this way, and for drawing attention to something that I think we should all think a little bit more about, which is simply the plight of immigrants, people who've been displaced for any number of reasons. And who are seeking a forever home. I mean, that's really it. You're seeking the space that you can live and be your full self. Why shouldn't that be our human right? Here, here. Well, thank you so much, Orlando, for joining me today. I know you have your own website. So where would you prefer that people go and find you? And we can send them to social spaces and to orlandoortegamedina.com. I'm quite active on, on Twitter, O Ortega Medina, at O Ortega Medina. I also have a presence on Facebook, but I'd say that Twitter's a good place to see what I'm up to, connect with me if you want to send me uh, a message and ask me something about, about my work or what have you. Listeners, you're more than welcome. I do have a, a website, which is orlandoortegamedina.co.uk, not .com. .co.uk, I got that wrong. So great. So your full name.co.uk. Okay, perfect. Now, as a question for you about Twitter, why do authors like Twitter so much? <laughs> Maybe old authors. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like authors and politicians. So I see even those that write for things like Forbes or Entrepreneur, they're all over Twitter and not so much on other social platforms. When I first started exploring social media, I was a complete neophyte to it. And, and somebody told me, oh, let's start with Twitter. And so they showed me the ropes of how to use Twitter. And then I started, uh, as of late, looking at Instagram and, and posting things to Instagram. So learning the ropes on Instagram, I'm sure it's simple for most people. But for me, I'm still trying to, to decide which is the one that, um, that I like uh, to use more. But I think right now, 
Yeah, for the time being, Twitter is the probably the best platform for me, just because it's it's an easy one to to toss something up there, um, share it, um, communicate with the people who are liking, uh, sharing on onwards, whatever it is that I post, and also supporting other authors and politicians and whoever it is that I I see they resonate with me so. Fantastic. Well, I was just curious because I have not <laughs> ever really fallen in love with Twitter. And, you know, people tell me I have to make a space for myself there because of the podcast and also because I write, but it's a little bit of a mystery to me still. So, which is the platform that you prefer? I think I like Instagram. I appreciate visual media, but frankly, I think TikTok is a lot more fun. So, <laughs> I've been spending more time on TikTok and really understanding that people they don't like to read as much as they once did on social platforms. So video media seems to be where it's at. And so if I'm sharing my thoughts in video format, where's the best place for that? Probably Twitter or Instagram as opposed to, sorry, Twitter or TikTok or Instagram as opposed to Twitter. <laughs> I played around with TikTok a little bit, but it seems to me that I don't have the equipment, can I say, to like make a, a quality video. I mean, even even right now, as the sun goes down behind me, that my image is becoming darker and it's not as sharp, as lovely as yours. You know, I feel like if I had better technology, then probably I would... Uh, venture into TikTok. But so far, I haven't quite found that I can produce. Well, the technology you need is just your phone. Is that it? <laughs> really? Yes. Microphones? No? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> most, people, <laughs> most people that are there are just using their phone. There are those who connect a microphone. I can give you some personal recommendations offline, but I got to tell you, it, it's kind of superfluous. Like, I think your message and your content would resound. It's just getting comfortable with the platform. And hey, good time of day. Just face a window, hold your phone and go for it. I will take you up on that. <laughs> Well, you find a reading nook, you know, read a passage from your book. I will give you an example. My friend, Cassie Alexander, she's an author of Paranormal Romance. She had a series that was bought by another press and produced five co five volumes of that series there and has since just gone to self-publishing everything because she has better margins. But she's cracked the TikTok nut and what she will do there is read excerpts or a review or just share news or even share some of the struggles that she's having as a writer or something that excited about. It just has seemed to be a really comfortable space for her to connect with her audience and continue to build. And it doesn't seem like it's rocket science. It's a little bit more relaxed, I think, than how formulaic everything seems to be on Instagram these days. That's just my thoughts. I'll look into it. Well, thank you so much again for joining me today. Do you have any closing words or perhaps a question you wish I'd asked that I haven't? No, I think you pretty much covered everything. It was a very insightful and deep dive into my work. So I think that I appreciate that, Karina. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, and the next time you come out with a book and when you're ready with that prequel, reach out and I'll gladly bring you back on. Thanks very much. Take care then. To learn more about Orlando Ortega Medina, you can always go Google him the way I did or visit his website, Orlando Ortega Medina.
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.co.uk. As always, you can visit show notes for this episode, and I will include direct links to find the book, to find Orlando, and to learn more about his other works as well. When you visit my website, caremorebebetter.com, you'll find so much more, including complete transcripts for this episode, expanded show notes, and bonus features that you won't find anywhere else. You'll also find links and additional resources that we mentioned during today's episode. I may even include a couple of key tools for those that want to make more of an impact on social media. While you're visiting caremorebebetter.com, please be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Subscribers receive a welcome gift as part of this community, which is simply a five-step guide to help you get organized, inspire your activism, or even just serve as a great project management tool. If you have feedback or you want to suggest a future show topic or guest, please send me an email directly from the site, or you can even click that microphone button in the bottom right-hand corner at caremorebebetter.com to leave me a voicemail. I want to hear your voice too. This can be a two-way exchange. Thank you, listeners and watchers, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even create a better, more global society where refugees and immigrants from all over can thrive. One people, one planet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 